Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. Our guest today, Marcus Samuelson, is a chef, entrepreneur, author, and media personality. Samuelson owns and operates several restaurants in the United States and abroad. He resides in Harlem in close proximity to his restaurant, The Red Rooster. The late Anthony Bourdain featured him and his wife on an episode of Parts Unknown. Most recently, Samuelson is the host of the PBS series, No Passport Required. Marcus, welcome and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be on. So, Marcus, we, uh, we met through an interest in collaborating on educating people about African-American foodways. And I was delighted to hear your perspective. And I want to start off with giving some people an idea of your background. And I don't know if people have asked you this before, but I'm going to ask you, first of all, in high school, what kind of extracurricular activities did you do when you were a high school student? Yeah, I was playing soccer. I was playing a lot of soccer. I was always always interested into sort of uh, African American culture because it was a culture I wanted, and uh, you know, I could, as a person of color that I can identify with. And um, there was always sort of some cross culture of between you know sitting on the bus, going to my soccer practice, and you know listening to Prince or Michael or, or, or Marvin or, or hip-hop and, you know, coming back from soccer, you know, doing your homework on the bus and then, like, checking out MTV or something like that. So it was really, I say that because black culture, when you don't live in America, you, you know, the rest of the world, we get projected black culture and it's very much become through pop culture we experience that and it's also become part of almost like extra studies in a way because it builds so much into your identity. Did you attend college or college and culinary school? I went to culinary school only and I wasn't really a fan of my culinary school because I was, I was stunned that when I got there, people were playing around. They were not there to be chefs and it was, it was shocking to me. I'm like, I'm focused. How come they're not focused? And um, that was a good, it was a good lesson for me Maybe not at the time, but it was just a good lesson to see, like, you know, life's going to throw you so many different challenges. And my father didn't want me to quit. He didn't want to have that on my CV. Mm. And it wasn't okay to quit. Mm. So I had to, you know, I was committed to learning and I worked on the weekends, but uh, I felt I would come behind, fall behind on cooking. Uh, Because, you know, the weekdays in school was just like people were playing around. So, um I was able to do my hours actually in in restaurants and have chefs sign for it, uh, and it was something that you know a couple of the kids that were super focused on cooking were allowed to do that at, at, at my year, and it was a good way for us to you know stay into it and not leave school. Which school did you go to, and how did you go about selecting that one? I mean, I, I'm a I'm a public school kid, you know, in Sweden, you know, there's. Very little private school. There's a couple of more private schools now, but at my time, there was no such thing as private school. So I went to the Culinary Institute of Gothenburg, and it was only one. And uh, you know, I got in, and then I was excited, and uh, we made it work. But I realized quickly, you know, 
I came from a very Gothenburg back then, even more than today. It was a you know, it's on the west coast of Sweden. It's where they make Volvo, an hour away from where they made Saab cars. So it's a very blue collar town. So fine dining. You know, it's not really to be had in that town. So you realize quickly that you got to leave town, right, mm. in order to, you know, you, you dream about becoming a chef, and you realize it's not going to happen for me in this town. So getting scholarships, having a chance to travel was something that became very clear to me, and I got a chance to go to Japan very young, and I got a chance to go to Switzerland and, and France, but just setting dreams and visions that was way beyond my city wasn't strange to me. And it was almost like, I think, a relief of being a young black kid. You realize quickly that whatever's going to happen to me is not necessarily going to be in this city. What would you make a required college course for somebody who knew they wanted the culinary track? I mean, life skills. The key thing for me is to travel, travel within your city, be exposed and travel outside the country, Right. Because what I learned from being in Japan is all the different things that no YouTube or no cooking school can teach you. How does the environment smell like? What is the culture here? Started to understand like something like ikajime, how like how you know fish quality of grade uh, fish got really taken care of from some from, from start to finish. I walked the fish market. Like things like there's no college course in the world that can teach you all this stuff. Being alone as a little black kid in in a different country is scary but also gives you a lot of strength. So all these culture stuff that eventually still fall back on when I do a dish or when I teach to my uh, young cooks something. It goes back to culture. Living in Switzerland where people speak French, German Italian and English, and to communicate, they have to figure that out. There is no cooking school, and there's no college in the world that can teach you those skills. So for me, that mixed environment of you have to, you have to figure things out on your feet in the moment, which is what being a chef, an entrepreneur, and a restaurateur about. There's only so much uh, a, a structured college environment can teach you, but nothing beats do, and nothing beats going out and get, go go out and get it. How did you pay for culinary school? I came up in a diff- very different system. Meaning you have a higher tax bracket than you have in America. So school for us is for free or your parents pay for it through taxes. It's just a different way of paying for it. But that did not... What I had to pay for was working in France for, ye- for a year for free. Or working, you know, when I went abroad to work, I didn't get paid. So I had to work a lot to save up money for a year to be able to go abroad. My debt really came from when I was working, uh, which maybe sounds crazy, but we just we were students, so we didn't get paid. So that was my level of, it's just a different school system. I learned a ton, so I felt it was a fair trade. You know, I didn't, yes, I worked a lot of hours, but also learned a ton. And I think that shows you that education, as long as you're committed to it, uh, can happen on so many different levels. You've been in the States uh, you know, doing your thing for a while, and, and you've met thousands of very successful chefs. How important is the culinary school you go to versus the attitude you take when you go there? Well, I think it's a combination of everything, because the great thing with culinary school is that you can submerge yourself, right? There's, you know, you have the library, you have the professors, you have the other students that are also into it. So it's a very rare, unique time. You get the chance to practice a lot. But again, you 
students have to be ready to process that information. And you probably have to work a little bit on the weekends just so you you have a chance to practice what you're learning, right? You know, working in a, in a restaurant with a great chef, it's an amazing experience because you're learning what school can't teach you. Having the, that, that pure time where you can actually just completely submerged with learning that a college or a cooking school environment can teach you, it's also very rare. So I think you need both. Uh, you need a healthy bo- a dose of both. Just like in business, you need to have a great push and pull between managerial and entrepreneurial. Who have been uh, your most important mentors? For me, people like Miss Leah Chase will always be the first. I really admire someone like that that's been working since the 40s. She knew how to maneuver business through very everything from Katrina and think about how many recessions and think about how many, you know, how America looked like when she started to cook and what America looks like today. There is nothing that Miss Leah hasn't seen or dealt with from a community, from a running a business perspective. So someone like that, what could be a better role model than a female uh, chef of color that being owning her business for 70-plus years. In the other cooking, chefs like Charlie Trotter and Danielle Ballou. Charlie Trotter is a chef from Chicago that is really, in the 90s, was really the anchor of cookbooks and great restaurants. And he was really trained so many great chefs that came out of the Midwest, came out of Chicago. And he was always available to help out. Someone like today that I call a lot, Danielle Ballou. But I also have other other mentors. I think, you know, my parents are not around, but my parents were very helpful. They didn't know cooking per se, but they knew work ethic. Came from a very strong work ethic family. Let's transition and talk specifically about uh, our interest in collaboration on African-American cooking. What's something about African-American food and recipes that you think most people just don't get? That we're not monolithic in our eating habits, that... Um, it's a very basic thing that we obviously should understand that you eat locally because we eat locally just like like any culture, right? That there is many things that made us unique but also very different. That think about African America. You can you can have roots in Senegal and you can have roots in Jamaica. You can have migrated over to Seattle. Well you're gonna eat very, very different based on that, right? There is a core that we were similar with, but it's also that we don't eat monolithic, that we we don't listen to the same music. There's a core that we enjoy, but there's also we have we're different in our arts, we're different in our in our reading habits, we're different in our uh, music habits, we're also different in our food habits. What's the relationship uh, do you see between your upcoming book on African American cookery and what you are currently doing at Red Rooster? At Red Rooster, we all inspired, and we wouldn't be here without African American culture. You know, we're very specifically uh, eight years later had Red Rooster at on 125th and Lenox, which is a historically very important place to to for African American culture. Right, we're half a block away from Sylvia's, that's been there for over 55 years, and we we take that with pride. We we honor African American food culture in so many different ways, whether it's through dinners that we put together or the winemakers' dinners that are led by African-American winemakers. There's so many ways that we can communicate our culture. And once you look under the hood a little bit, you realize that there are many hands in that. 
Africans, African Americans, the native, the settler, Latin cooking, and that's sort of what we start to unpack. And that that's the beauty about being in Harlem that you're constantly exposed to new and different narrative to African American cooking culture. Might live on spe- special locations, but there's a way for us to talk to that through our food and through our dinners. I just saw the movie The Green Book yesterday with with my wife. Mm-hmm. There's a scene in which this very scholarly, erudite, well-trained African-American musician who has grown up outside of any kind of traditional African-American community. And there's a scene in which his, an Italian-American chauffeur from the Bronx, they're going through Kentucky, and the, the, the uh, chauffeur sees that Kentucky Fried Chicken. He says, oh, my God, for Kentucky Fried Chicken in Kentucky. I got to try this. He stops. He gets a bucket of chicken, and he's eating it offers the guy some fried chicken. The guy says, fried chicken? No, thank you. That sounds disgusting, eating it with your hand. The, the whole thing is this guy has not even had the experience of eating fried chicken you know, with his hands. He's totally estranged. I wondered when you think of that, being in many ways a newcomer to Harlem, in what ways has Harlem and living there introduced you to African-American culture in a way that you didn't expect it to change you like it has changed you? father had a PhD in geology, and he, I say that because he started as a fishing boy with his father, so this idea between hard work and seeing blue-collar, going, becoming a white-collar professor and, and running his business, this is something that we were brought up around, mm. different worlds and different habits and different rituals. But when my father and I, when we ate fish back home in his fishing village, we ate it. We had, you have to eat it like the rituals in the village. You don't complain about bones when you eat in a fishing village because that's, you know that that's where the good fish is, right? There are rituals that knowing how to eat things that only being around a culture can teach you. Mm. And those rituals uh, are key. And if you don't act around those, no, don't learn those rituals, you can't really eat at the right table. Before I opened Red Rooster, I moved up to Harlem. It was eight years between me and my wife moved here, mm. between we opened the restaurant, because I needed to learn the rituals. It, it, you know, it helped that I loved African-American culture, and I was generally intrigued by how to learn more about it. But I had to learn the rituals. And that could be anything from that. The book, everyone knows the best jerk chicken in the summer is in the parks. <laughs> now, you know, we don't, do, we don't do food trucks and blogs in Harlem. Those are in parks. Everyone knew that if you want a really good fried chicken, you go, you bike up to Rutgers. And, you know, you bite there and then, you know, you eat it with your hands as you're watching the ball game. And those are rituals, and you just kind of got to be part of that whole dialogue and be invited into that dialogue. And that has nothing to do with being a big-time chef. You got to behave a certain way to be invited into that. That's a block party invitation. You're either going to get it or you don't. Lived here now for uh, 18 years, has taught me and given me the license to understand and to be part of the community whole idea is to be in and of a culture. Living here gives us an opportunity to learn and study and be part 
part of the culture, all of it. And that's why me and my wife constantly, we have to live here and work with the culture and build on it so it can teach us and inform us. And we can hopefully also add value to it. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can purchase a copy of my autobiography slash career advice, Start With Your Gift, on Amazon.com. We are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Be a difference maker right now. Purchase two or more paperback copies of Start With Your Gift. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. The book is available in digital form as an ebook and audiobook. Welcome back to this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Came and we talked recently. You told me about a, a new restaurant you're opening up in Montreal. Can you tell us what the theme of the restaurant is and when is it expected for the doors to be open, etc.? We're going to open a Marcus restaurant in Montreal in, in spring. Sometimes in spring, and it's going to be a lot of seafood focus, and obviously learning about. We've learned a lot about the local regional food in in, in Montreal, and it's a it's a beautiful city. It's, a, it's going to be a beautiful restaurant, and we're just excited to be part of uh, a community that is taking us three years to learn a little bit about, and hopefully we can add value. You know, uh, it's a it's a opening is a handshake and saying, hey, what. We're here to cook, we're here to learn, we're here to serve, and hopefully the community's going to be excited about it. It's, it's, it's the starting point for, for hopefully a very long uh, relationship, and that's why I looked at restaurants, right? It really goes back to the core of restoring a community, taking in all aspects. And when we post up, it's going to be about art, about conversation, about great hospitality, and of course, great food and beverages. What would you uh, say to a, a person who was going to be opening a restaurant for the first time? Maybe two or three things that, that you say when you go into it. Number one, this is what I'm doing. Number two. Understand or respect the community you're going to serve. A real emotional restaurant that means something for the community is not a transactional uh, conversation. It's not. You can't just expect that. You have to actually respect and learn, be excited to serve the community that you're in. It takes humility from restaurant is not a normal workplace in that sense. You know, in the north, some office is a place where people consume alcohol. It's a place, it's a place where people uh, go to be seen and eat, and also it's a place where people going to create memories. Right? So it's not like an insurance office or a, uh, an, another office. It's a really a place for where people come to celebrate or post a funeral. So it's a very, you're part of something deeply, deeply special. You know what I mean? Very intimate if you do it right. So learn and appreciate the community you're going to serve and appreciate the, the, the locals. In your response, you said nothing about the numbers and financing. You went first mm-hmm. to making sure you understand and you respect the people who you're going to serve. That was the very first, I, I didn't hear you say anything about And, and I, intuitively, I thought, oh, wow, you know, make sure you have the right the amount of finances. Make sure you have the right partners. But you didn't even go there. Why? Because if you don't do the first point right, you're not going to get to the second point. 
and maybe in this research of doing this makes you think you're not going to open there. And that's okay. That's a smart decision. Learning to say no about it is fine. And in this search, I realized, hey, this community might not be for me. And which is absolutely fine for both sides. Restaurant is terroir. You're going to serve the local fish or the local vegetables. or the, You're going to present a local ritual dish that's been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, so, so if you do it right, people are going to take that level of pride and, and talk about you in their living room and talk about you for your auntie, for your grandmother. You know, These are very intimate conversations. If you do that right, you have earned the license to post up and employ and be part of the community. If you don't do these things right, you shouldn't be doing it. Where did you learn that from? Or who did you learn that from? I think I learned it from just working in an immigrant six times. You know, being uh, being black and an immigrant, you know, people who, most of the time, people first going to glance at you and give you a side eye and be suspicious. There's something problematic with that, but there's also a big benefit to that. If you do your homework right, you can also come back overcome many things. I think people often forget as a professor you are serving people. They're not there to for yeah. to you know for for them to serve you. If you don't do a good job, just like you want repeat mm-hmm. customers, I want repeat customers every semester. I can tell you professor um, that walking the five blocks from my house to my restaurant sounds something like this. Every day and every night. Hey, man, when is my cousin going to get a job? Why is that chicken so expensive? Hey, I didn't like the cocktail last night. Hey, my auntie is having a 60s. We want to do it downstairs. Do you know about this new politician that's coming through? We want to throw an event there. Hey, the band last night was amazing. All of the above, right? And I stop for each person. Hey, chef, you're the cooking guy. Ba, 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 right? Hmm. And, you know, in the beginning, if you walk next to me, it's overwhelming or strange. You know, like if people have this very intimate relationship with you. Mm-hmm. And I always tell my wife, there's only one sound that would be, you know, much worse than that. It would be, it would be totally quiet. Hmm. It would mean that we wouldn't have that impact in our community. It would mean that we haven't, you know, we have six farmers markets in Harlem today. There was none before Red Rooster. And I'm not saying they're all connected to us. They're not. They're connected to the larger work of the community. But, you know, we have a festival now that 12, 14,000 people are coming to Harlem Meet Up in May and coming to eat in Harlem. And, 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 and people are driving from seven, so from 31 states and flying in for to be part of a festival. So we clearly uh, are engaging a lot of people. And yeah, that's taxing, but the, what would be worse is if you just quietly, no one wants to engage. Tell me a little bit about the TV show, No Passport Required. Go on Netflix and take a look at the Burdain segment uh, that features Marcus and his wife. It's an absolutely phenomenal show. How did you learn Thank media? You. How have you worked on yet another space? It's the kitchen space, it's the entrepreneur space, now it's the media space. How have you learned it? Well, I think about as a creative, I, you, I always want to share. And I, and I do realize that as a black man that there's a dual role of being able to 
inspire and aspire, you know. You know, I have aspirations and I will never stop my aspiration, but also there's a young tribe coming up underneath me that we can inspire too. And one of the strongest ways is to to put content out and have people be able to study it and come to it and be inspired by it. And I've also been around great chefs that have taught me this. Like Tony taught me a lot about the people business, you know. Through my travels, I've always gone further if I brought, if I broke bread with somebody. You know, if you're not going to start talking about politics, we're going to talk about religion. You know, it's going to be a very hard first conversation. But if you and I still want to talk about food right away, there's an opportunity for both of us to opt in and add, you know, shared experiences or, or we might disagree, but we land on a smile. Mm-hmm. And food has this magical, magical thing where you can actually start talking to someone that it's almost like sports, right? If you're a Red Sox fan and somebody else is a Red Sox fan and you see them at the airport and you're waiting, it just changes that weight a little bit, right? And he might, she might be completely different religiously or race or culturally than you, but you have that moment where you can actually share something. And that's what gumbo, that's what cornbread, that's what berber, that's what, you know, herring can do. I can always smell out another sweet at the airport without <laughs> talking about the ritual. You know, I will always meet another lady that can tell me that her greens are better than mine. And I love that. And I always ask her, well, what are you going to do? What are you doing with them? Teach me. Because I don't know. She might be better. And I, if there's something to tip up, you know, if there's a tip there, I'll take it. So these are the type of things. And it's such a great way of 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 having a great dialogue and anytime we can have a good conversation in these sort of devices time take it take it you know what i mean mm-hmm. how much are you uh, driving the the writing of the show uh no passport required versus ad living when yeah, you're on the set or you know, live it's a very collaborative effort i mean i'm fortunate right pbs is an incredible institution so finding great content they're amazing at. And Eater Vox, I mean, they have some of the best local knowledge in, of anyone out there. So having these two powerhouses pushing each other and pushing me. And then also, obviously, we want to have conversations about stuff that, you know, I feel is very relevant. You know, there was, it's not a coincidence that in our first year that we, you know, that we want to cover Mexican-American in this moment. And the contribution to American food in Chicago specifically, right? So it's a portrait of the town and it's a portrait of, of the immigrant community. You know, being Arab-American in Detroit, it was important for us. So we're living at a time where it's very divisive. So we look at stories and incredible sort of hidden stories where we feel like, hey, we can highlight this and the food is delicious and the storytelling is delicious. So it's both much of... Uh, hats off to the city as it is to that immigrant community and to the other people in the community that may not be part of that immigrant community but actually have opened doors for it. One of the best segments that Tony did to, in my mind was the one on the opioid crisis up here in New England where I live. Oh it was God, just eye-opening. So how much has that influenced, as you say, the in many ways uh, – 
I don't know if it's overt or covert political analysis. We make a decision. We're going to cover Mexican-Americans because what we hear out in, in the blogosphere and the uh, coming across the pulpit. American food, as we know, it wouldn't be the same without African-Americans, Chinese-Americans, and Mexican-Americans. You can't talk about you can't and Native Americans, of course. So you could we wouldn't land where we are today, and they're all we all contributed different, right? But when we're at this moment where where uh, you we are, there was a moment to celebrate Mexican American culture and how much it's been given to food in the, you know an amazing food town like Chicago. And I felt that the store the content out there. Did not was still a void on how much they contributed. So I just feel like anytime there's a moment where you can highlight something or somebody or a culture with a great city, you should do it. It doesn't mean that you know it's one and done, but if we can drive people to it and you start thinking about it from a from an authentic, real experience, maybe it starts a conversation that was needed or was that was missing. Folks, that is chef, entrepreneur, author, and more, Marcus Samuelson. Marcus, thank you so much for taking the time out and coming on the show. You dropped some nuggets that I hope people will take the time and dig up in this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. So happy that we can collaborate, and congrats to everything that you have achieved. It's much needed, and congrats to all your books and the content you put out. You keep inspiring us. Thank you so much. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. To hear more content like it, go to fredopi.com. If you have questions about advertising and sponsoring this show, contact us at fdopie at gmail.com. That's fdopie at gmail.com.